brethren, finding your Bibles as you take your seats, Revelation 21. And if you remember, last week we began to look at this chapter, and I asserted many times in the past that chapters 19 to 22 actually constitute the seventh and final cycle within the book of Revelation. And those seven cycles depict or describe the time frame between Jesus' first and second comings. Furthermore, we find here in chapter 21 and chapter 22, perhaps the most fullest and beautiful description of heaven in the entirety of the Bible. Now, of course, many of the things that we find in chapters 21 and 22 are borrowed from the Old Testament, as we've seen in our study of Revelation, especially in some of those last chapters, chapters, well, several chapters through Isaiah, but particularly the last two, Isaiah 55 and 6. Furthermore, heaven is described largely as a new heavens and earth, chapter 21, and as paradise restored, chapter 22. Or else, to look just at chapter 21, there's really two descriptions of the people of God. They are a holy city and a beautiful bride. Now he's made reference to this city back in verse 2, but now beginning at verse 9 to the end of the chapter, he elaborates on this holy and new Jerusalem. So verses 9 to 26 has as its theme the heavenly Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem or the city of God. And it's a little larger passage, again, verse 9 all the way to 27. And I want to suggest seven things about the city of God in these verses. And because of the length of the passage, we won't read it outright. I'll just read it as I come to each of those seven points. All right, so we find, first of all, its identity. Verse 9 and 10. The one, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. This is nothing more nor less than the collective people of God. Now that's exceedingly plain, brethren. We find that the city is described in verse 9 as the Lamb's wife. Jesus has but one bride, and that's the church. And here the church in its fullest sense, comprised of the Old and New Testament elect. And I suggest that because we find in verse 12, for example, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written on the 12 gates to the city. There's three gates on each of the four sides. And then there's the 12 apostles. Their names are written on the 12 foundation stones. And why is it that there's the 12 tribes of Israel and the Twelve apostles, but because these are representatives of Old and New Testament Christians. Brother, there's only one people of God for whom Jesus died. And here they are. This is the people of God, described in a most wonderful way. But let me suggest that there's um, specific reasons why... The 12 names are written where the, of, of Israel are written where they're written on the 12 gates, and the 12 apostles' names are written on the 12 foundations. Well, the 12 tribes of Israel are written on the gates. Again, there's 12 gates, three on each side of this squared city. We'll get to the size of it here in a moment. It's very large. 
because it's fundamentally teaching us that all of the nations of the world, as promised to Abraham, have collectively gathered themselves within this city. And that's why there's three gates to the east, uh, south, north, and west. In other words, this massive city, this multitude of people is comprised of people taken from every every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And furthermore, the 12 names of the 12 apostles are written on the foundation stones because we read in the New Testament that the church itself is built upon what? It's built upon the foundation of the apostles and the New Testament prophets. Because Jesus gave us his word through the apostles and prophets, they formed the very foundation upon which the church rests, with Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And it's for this reason we find that this massive city, this multitude no man can number, is comprised of all the elect saved out of the Old and New Testaments. Listen to Richard Brooks. He says, Together, what do the gates and foundations with the respective names on them signify? Surely this, all the elect, complete and finished. No one is missing who should be there. Christ has not lost a single one of those given to him by his Father. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel and the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb represent the victorious conclusion of the plan of redemption. We shall keep, I love this little phrase that Brooks says, we shall keep some lovely company in glory. All God's people from the Old Testament days, New Testament days, and all the days since then. All the elect are there. All of those who lived in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're all there. Paul, Peter, James, Jude, all of the New Testament saints are there and everyone since. Luther, Calvin, Swingley, Spurgeon, our loved ones who died in Jesus. All of God's people comprise this massive, beautiful city. So it's a city made of living stones. And we're going to see that's in part why it's described in such a beautiful way. So mark it down, brethren, that the identity of the city is none other than the elect of God, the people of God. All right? Secondly, notice its size, verses 6. Um, Well, let's start verse 11. Having the glory of God, her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had... 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city its gates and its walls the city is laid out as a square its length is as great as its breadth and he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs its length breadth and height are equal then he measured its wall 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. In other words, this is figurative imagery here. The measurements are figurative, according to the measure of a man. We find that, uh, according to verse 16, the city is a perfect square. It's approximately 1,400 miles in every direction. That means up as well as out. It's a perfect square, right? So it goes up as much as it does out in every direction. A perfect 
square, about 1,400 miles in every direction. Now, let me ask you this. What other edifice in the Bible is a perfect square? The Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the other, only other edifice in, by, in the Scripture that was a perfect square. And what was the Holy of Holies but the special dwelling place of God? Brethren, God uniquely and especially dwells in this city. This, it's as if the whole earth is covered with one big Holy of Holies. According to verse 17, the walls are more than 200 feet thick. The obvious point being that the city is exceedingly secure. That's the point here. That's why the walls are so tall. The walls are 1,400 feet wide or or, uh, tall. Again, it's all figurative language, brethren, to underscore the fact that this is one massive city. Let me put it as plainly as I can. A lot of people go to heaven. A lot of people go to heaven. Binky said, if you look at the measurements of the city in verse 16, you see it's 12 furlongs wide, long and high, which means that it extends 1,400 miles in every direction. This city would be half the size of the United States. It's a vast city. Its inhabitants, and here's the point, its inhabitants are countless. They are from every tribe, nation, and tongue. This is one massive city. And it underscores again that there's a lot of people who go to heaven. Because remember, this city is symbolic for the people of God. It's not a literal city. That's ridiculous, to put it plainly. It is that. It is ridiculous. In fact, it's more than that. It's criminal. To interpret the Bible so foolishly. This is the people of God. For whom Jesus died. This is our beloved's bride. And Jesus didn't marry bricks and stones. He wed himself to sinners saved by his grace. And to suggest otherwise is exceedingly troublesome. To put it plainly. Thirdly, notice its glory. Verse 18. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardix, the sixth uh, sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophas, the eleventh jasmine, and the twelfth amist. And then verse 21, the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. The city is constructed with precious gems, metals, and pearls. Of course, this symbolic imagery is used to underscore the value, beauty, and glory of the city of God. We find it in verse 11, very concisely stated, having the glory of God. This is a glorious city. In fact, the language here is actually borrowed from chapter 4, verse 3, where several of these same precious stones are applied to Christ. In other words, the people of God in heaven share in the glory of Christ. They reflect his image, right? This is the whole point of our sanctification and, and subsequent glorification. What are we being transformed into? What are we being conformed into? But the image of Christ. Christ is described with similar uh, glory and beauty 
in chapter 4. And here we find that the entirety of the city shines with Jesus' beauty. In fact, the precious stones on the 12 foundation stones were the same, exact same, on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. So if you remember, if you go back to the Old Covenant, you'll find the high priest wore a breastplate that contained 12 stones upon which were written the names of the 12 tribes. Okay, so he had this beautiful gold breastplate and he had in the breastplate these 12 stones and engraved on each stone was one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. What did that mean? It meant that the high priest bore the high priest bore the people of God on his breast. It means he loved them and it means he represented them before God. So as he entered into the, the, te- uh, the temple, he, as it were, did so as the people's representative, brethren. Furthermore, he bore the same stones upon his shoulders to underscore the fact that he bore up the people of God. He loved the people of God. He bore up the people of God. What is my point? They were one. That's the point here. Why is it that Jesus is described in the same way that the church is described? Because we're one with him. And just like in the Old Testament, the high priest bore the people of God upon his shoulder and upon his breast. Jesus now, as it were, bears us up before the throne of God. And in heaven, in the new heaven and earth, we will shine with the very glory of Jesus Christ himself. We'll bear his image. That's the point, brethren. Now, let me just show you very quickly another text. um, That uses similar imagery with regards to the people of God. And back up to 1 Corinthians 3. Now beginning at verse 9 and following, Paul is speaking about ministers, and he's specifically speaking to ministers. Brother, all you have to do is just read the verses that come before, and you'll see that. The people are elevating the ministers. Paul says, look, the ministers are just servants of God. And then he says that we're God's fellow workers. You, the people of God, are God's field and God's building. By building is specifically meant temple. The church is God's temple. Now notice, according to the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and other builds on it, that is the other minister's, But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Christ. Jesus is the chief cornerstone to this building. It's not a physical building. It's the church. Now if anyone builds on this foundation, listen, with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, again, this is talking about ministers. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he receives reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved so as, so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's talking about the church. If anyone defiles the temple of God, that is the church, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Brethren, the temple here described in 1 Corinthians 3 is one and the same with the city, that's the bride, in Revelation 21. And the idea here is, Paul is speaking to ministers, and he says, look, he speaks of their converts, those you add into the church, as being either gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. The latter three will be burned up. That means they won't go to heaven. They're false converts. Whereas the 
former three, gold, silver, and precious stones, refer to those who've been properly laid in the wall upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. This is talking about those ministers who try to fill up their church with a bunch of hypocrites. Because the more people they have in the church, either the more money they get or the more respect they get in their little ministerial worlds. And what Paul is saying is be careful. Be careful with what you build the temple with. Because only those things that are built upon the foundation will last. The others will be burned up in the day of judgment. It's talking about people, brethren. But the point here is, is that what, what kind of stones comprise this temple or this city, but living stones described as gold, silver, and precious stones. And so when we go to Revelation 21, we find that this beautiful, transcendent, glorious city is comprised of gold, silver, and precious stones. There's only the elect in this city, brethren. As we'll see here in a moment. All right, that brings me then fourthly to its temple. Look back to Revelation 21. This time, verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. My brother, in this text and the ones that follow surely should have been probably left to consider by themselves next week. It's surely one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, in the Old Testament, in the literal city of Jerusalem, there was a temple. And God dwelt in that temple, didn't he? Well, God dwells in this city, but not in a temple. Because, well, he does dwell in it, in this city, in a temple, but he himself is that temple. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That is, God in Christ, brethren, dwells in the midst of his people in the new heaven and earth, just like he dwelt among his old covenant people who dwelt in the literal city of Jerusalem in the temple. Or else back up And look at it more broadly. In paradise, God dwelt among his people in a garden, right? His special localized presence was in Eden. It wasn't everywhere on the earth because he was banished from Eden. Man was banished because of his sin from Edom and thus the presence of God. And then when God brought his people into the promised land, their inheritance, he dwelt among them in the city of Jerusalem by way of a temple. He didn't dwell everywhere in the land. He dwelt only in the city of Jerusalem in the temple. Well, here we have in chapter 21, and we'll see in chapter 22, our restored paradise, chapter 22. And we have a restored promised land, a new heaven and earth. And we have a city. But unlike all those other places where God specially or uniquely dwelt, here we find that God's unique and or special presence covers the entirety of the new heaven and earth. That's the whole point here, brethren. In paradise, God uniquely dwelt in Eden. In Canaan, he uniquely dwelt in Jerusalem. But in the new paradise, in the new Jerusalem, in the new earth, he uniquely dwells everywhere. We could say in one sense or another that the entirety of the new heaven and earth is one holy of holies. God's special covenantal presence 
is on the entirety of the new heaven and the new earth. Now there's many Old Testament passages that uh, John is borrowing from. In fact, almost every single verse in chapter 21 and 2 is taken right out of the Old Testament. We just never have the time, do we, to go back and look at them. But I do want to take a few minutes and look at this one. Look at the last chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy. By the way, Ezekiel, beginning at chapter 40, all the way to the end, has the same prophecy that John has in chapter 21. And notice Ezekiel 48, beginning at verse 30. These are the exits of the city. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, one Levi. On the east side, three gates, verse 32. Verse 33, on the south side, three gates. Verse 34, on the west side, three gates. All right, so this is, it's the same thing, isn't it? There's 12 gates. They each have the name, one name of the tribe of Israel. There's three on each of the four sides of this massive city. It's the same city. I mean, brother, I mean, it, it just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? When you have this, this, this city described in this way, and then John's city described in the exact way, that it's likely the same city. Well, it is the same city. Look at verse 35. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, And the name of the city from that day shall be, listen to this, the Lord is there. That's the whole point of this passage in Revelation 21. The Lord is there. Where? Is he just in Eden? No. Is he just in Jerusalem or the temple? No. He's everywhere. The Lord is there. But notice how John puts it back in our text. He describes the Father as the Lord Almighty, the Lord God Almighty, and then he describes Christ as the Lamb. Well, in the Old Testament literal temple, there were sacrifices, and that's how God, that's how people met with God, through the sacrifices. And so too we find that for all eternity, brethren, we will be in union with Christ. And just like, or or, or just as we've entered this, this city, heaven, for the sake of Christ, we will for all eternity remain in the city for the sake of Christ. How is it that we've come to know God but through Christ, our mediator? How will we know God for all eternity, brethren? We will only know God and we will always know God for all eternity through Christ. As we're going to see here in a few minutes, Christ himself is what? The light. He's the light of the city. We know God increasingly and more thoroughly through Christ For all eternity. In other words, union with Jesus doesn't end when we go into heaven. We will always and we will only know God for the sake of the Lamb. So the knowledge that we have in God and the fellowship and the communion that we have with God for all eternity will be for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Perhaps I can put it like this. We will always remain for all eternity saved sinners. Saved sinners. Listen to what Boston said. Since the union between Christ and the saints is never dissolved, but they continue his members forever, And the members cannot draw their life but from their head. Therefore, Jesus Christ will remain the everlasting bond of union betwixt God and the saints, from whence their eternal life shall spring. Friends, we will have unending 
unaltered fellowship with God in the new heaven and earth for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, fifthly, it's light. Verse 30, 23. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. Illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. I don't think this necessarily means there'll be no sun or moon in heaven, but that there'll be no need for the sun or moon in heaven because God illuminates it and the Lamb is its light. Now what does it mean when it says that God illuminates it in and through the Lamb who's the light? Well, it means Christ, the Lamb, will ongoingly and increasingly illuminate the city concerning the character of God the Father. So this means when we go to heaven, brethren, there'll be unending perfect fellowship between God, uh, between God and His people for the sake of the Lamb, and then there'll be increased understanding and knowledge of God again for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, we will for all eternity increase in our knowledge of God as Christ illuminates the character of God to us and warms our heart by it. Listen to what Ed Donnelly said. He said, the Lamb is the light bearer. And when we look at the Lamb, we see the glory of God. Christ is central in heaven because he reveals God to us. In heaven, we will worship God in the full-orbed display of his perfections, especially in the glorious person of his Son. So we find that Christ himself, obviously, and most evidently, is central to heaven, brethren. And we will forever and always fellowship with God. And we will forever and increasingly know God in and through the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why we have and the Lamb is its temple. And the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. That goes back to the point that I made earlier, that the 12 gates, the three on each of the four sides, describes the fact that all the nations of the world have entered in and have become citizens of this blessed city. But then, seventhly, we find its purity, verse 26 and 7. And they shall bring the, uh, 26, yeah, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall be by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is another way of saying that This city is made up of the elect. Now I think in verse 25, its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall not be no night there. Again, I don't believe necessarily that this means there's no night in heaven. Any more than the first part of verse 25 is literal. Its gates shall not be shut. Brethren, there's no gates in heaven. It's figurative language. It's figurative language to underscore the fact that you could, as it were, leave the gates open because there's no danger. That's the point. I mean, what are gates for in cities? To protect it, right, from its enemies. At nighttime, what'd you do if you lived in the city? You closed the gates. Well, there's no nighttime, so you don't have to close the gates in heaven. That means there's no dangers that we ordinarily associate with nighttime, brethren. 
Remember, there's no sea. We saw that last week. There's no sun and moon. There's no night. I think these are just figurative ways to teach spiritual truth. And I say that in part because if you go back to Isaiah 60, where this imagery is taken from, uh, notice verse 21, Isaiah 60, 21. Look to 19. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Verse 20. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. See, the imagery is a little varied, but it's teaching the same thing. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And the days of your mourning shall be ended. Okay, that kind of reflects back to what we saw last week, that our tears will be dried. There's no more night there. There's no more mourning. There's no more sorrow. There's no more affliction. There's no more enemies. There's no more reason to leave the gates. Or there's no more reasons to lock the gates at night. Brother, can you think about that? We can't even really envision that, can we? I mean, where we live at, we lock our doors at night. And I suspect most of us do. But to put it in this imagery, heaven is a place where you don't have to lock your doors at night. And the reason being is because there's no potential danger. But notice again the purity of verse 21. Um, did I, I gave you sixthly this security, yeah, and then seventhly is purity, we find that in verse 21. Also your people shall all be righteous, they shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Now what, uh, what, what land is he talking about here in the middle of 21? Well, he's talking about this new heaven and this new earth that's described in Revelation 21. And we're going to get it as an inheritance, just like Old Covenant Israel got the land of Canaan for inheritance. New Covenant Israel gets an inheritance, and it's called here the land, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, and here's the whole rationale behind it all, brethren, that I may be glorified. So we find that this wonderful city is nothing other than the people of God, the collective elect taken from Old and New Testaments. Its size, well, it's very large to underscore the fact that there's a lot of people who go to heaven. Its glory, it reflects the glory of God. It's conformed, or we are in total conformed to the image of Christ. Its temple, we have uninterrupted fellowship and worship of God in Christ. It's light. We increasingly grow in our knowledge of God and the joy of that knowledge for all eternity. It's security. There's no enemies there. The gates can be left open all night long. And it's purity. Only the righteous are there and not the wicked. Now, in the few minutes I have left, let me close with these exhortations. Number one. In the first place, let us anticipate heaven. That is, surely, brethren, we all concur, none of us think about heaven or meditate on heaven sufficiently. Why is that? Or or perhaps you're the exception. I can only... I guess to be fair, speak of myself. Why is it that I think of heaven so infrequently? Well, let me suggest a few reasons. One, ignorance. I mentioned this last week that I think a lot of Christians have the faulty notion that heaven will consist of us sitting on a cloud 
with white garments playing on a harp for all eternity. And again, if that's what God wanted heaven to be, then that would be a wonderful place. But that's not what God wanted heaven to be because he's revealed to us that heaven will be on this new earth. And it will reflect the similarities that took place in Adam's paradise. Because we're going to see, God willing, next week in chapter 22 of Revelation that this new heaven and earth is described in terms of paradise restored. And I think if we understood what heaven will actually be, it will create in us a desire to think about it and meditate upon it more often. Brother, I want you to do this. Go home and think about these seven descriptions of this city. And the more you do so, I assure you, as God gives you further light and clarity with respect to these seven descriptions of the people of God in heaven, your heart will be more zealous to think about it, to meditate upon it, and rejoice in it. Worldliness. It's another reason, I think, why many Christians fail to meditate on heaven. And here I don't mean necessarily worldliness in the sinful sense, just in the competitive sense. We have a lot to do. And it's hard for us, to be, to be honest, to think in terms of heaven when this earth is all we've known, brother. In fact, listen... To Ed Donnelly again. These are um, actually sermons that he preached years ago at a family conference. Banner of Truth put them in a book form uh, some years ago. You can get them off the internet if you just go to uh, Sermon Audio, look up Ed Donnelly, and uh, type in Heaven and Hell, and you'll get all the sermons. He preached them, like I said, at a Reformed Baptist family conference, and they're classics. In this section on Heaven Matters, uh, this sermon or chapter on heaven matters, he asks the question, why is heaven neglected? He says, one obvious reason why many of us do not reflect on heaven nearly as much as we should is that we're too preoccupied with this present world. We're surrounded by what we can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. If I take a coin in my hand, and hold it close to my eye, it will block out the sun, and I will see nothing but the small, shiny coin. Now the sun is bigger than the coin, but because the coin is close, it blocks from my sight something incomparably greater. Right? I mean, the, the, the coin is yay big, and the sun is... Mucho grande. He goes on to say, the daily realities of life may be neither big nor ultimately important, but they're close to us. They impinge upon us. And the danger is that the very closeness of this world blocks out the infinitely vaster prospect of the glorious world to come. He's saying that this world is like that little coin. And when he, because it's so close to our eye, it's uh, at least tempting to block out the world to come. And then thirdly, unbelief. I think this is another reason why a lot of Christians don't think of heaven. And uh, I think possibly, if they were to be honest, they're just afraid deep down in the recesses of their heart that they're not going to go there. And it's hard to, to rejoice at something that you're fearful may not be yours. And so what would I say to the first person who struggles with thinking about heaven due to ignorance? Go home and read Revelation 21 and 22. Like a good physician, I'm going to give you some medicine. Read Revelation 21, 22 tonight. And then tomorrow, read Revelation 21, 22. 
And then the next day, and 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 the next day, read Revelation 21 and 22. And I suspect that God, by His Spirit, will create in you a desire for that place. Worldliness? Well, we, we can't come out of the world, right? We're in, but not of the world. Just be mindful of the fact that this isn't our ultimate, ultimate home, brethren. This is our home, right, in one sense. But not in the final sense, not in the ultimate sense. This is but a coin, brethren, in comparison to the sun. And then with reference to unbelief. Well, that's a bigger question, more difficult perhaps. And let me just remind you this. Why is it that Jesus is so central to heaven but because we go to heaven because of Jesus. And then we're in heaven worshiping Jesus. So those who trust Jesus now of necessity will go to be with Jesus when they die. So ask yourself this question. Has God taught me that I am by nature a guilty, wretched sinner? And have I, by his grace, turned from trusting in anything inside of me? And have I come out of myself to Christ? And can I say, generally speaking, with judgment day honesty tonight, that all of my hope, all of my righteousness lies in the merits of another and not in my own works? Brethren, you know, it's really quite simple if you think about it. A Christian is somebody who's been driven outside of themselves to find refuge in Christ. And it's not in, it's, let me put it this way, it's rather frequent for me to have to remind myself that I haven't any hope in me, but I have all the hope I need in him. Have I abandoned my own righteousness? And am I trusting in the righteousness of another? Let us anticipate heaven. Secondly, let us experience heaven. What do I mean by this? Well, it's possible, brethren, to experience more of heaven on earth. Remember last week I spoke about how the spies brought back to the nation of Israel first fruits of the land of Canaan. And they were able to have a little bit of the fruits of Canaan while in the wilderness. And remember the New Testament actually uses that imagery with reference to New Covenant Israel. That the Holy Spirit is our what? Our down payment. And he, as it were, brings from heaven a little bit of the grapes and the figs and enables us, while yet in the wilderness of this world, to taste of the glories to come. Or let me put it like this. According to this passage we've just went through in Revelation 21, Jesus is at the very heart of heaven. And so if fellowshipping with Jesus, if being taught by Jesus the nature of God is going to be at the very heart of our activities in heaven, then brethren, ought not we do those very things now that we're going to do for all eternity? Do you remember what Paul said? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is it that death was going to bring gain, but it, it would just enable him to do perfectly what he did imperfectly in this life? And that was what? To live for Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, because get what, guess what I get when I die? I get Jesus. And uh, I'm not going to serve him there imperfectly as I serve him now. Listen again to, uh, to Ed Donnelly. Since heaven means being with Jesus, being with Jesus must mean heaven. 
And we can be with him now. We hope to go to heaven and claim to eagerly look forward to it. Yet the essence of the heaven we profess to long for is that communion with Christ in which we show so little interest in now. It's a tragic confession that he's making. We say, well, we want to go to heaven. Why? Because I want to be with Jesus. Well, brethren, if we want to go to heaven and be with Jesus, we can be with Jesus now before we get into heaven. Or we can bring a little heaven to earth. It's easier, isn't it, to talk of it or talk about it than to do it. Exhortation 3. Let us experience heaven, or anticipate heaven, experience heaven, and possess heaven. By this I mean... Let you tonight who aren't Christians come to Jesus and you'll go to heaven when you die. You who aren't Christians, come to Jesus tonight and you'll know a little bit of heaven now on earth. And when you die, you'll go to be with Jesus for all eternity. Jesus is at the heart of heaven because he purchased heaven for us and so the way to get in there is to come to the one who purchased it and that is none other than the lamb the one that was crucified for your sins and was raised again on the third day for your justification well you know brethren there's a lot of wonderful hymns that uh, draw from Revelation 21. And so I just wanted to close our devotional time by singing one of them. And that's 369. Now here's the interesting thing of this hymn. If you look at the text up there, it doesn't say anything about Revelation 21. You know, there's so much better theology in our hymn book than in the majority of systematic theologies recently made. And why is that? Because look at the psalm it has at the top, Psalm 87.1. His foundation is in the holy mountains. Now watch how the, the um, psalm writer takes that phrase and attaches it to Revelation 21. I want you to think about that as we stand and sing hymn 369.